Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today it's my pleasure to have Oliver Parker, who is the founder and owner of Capability Consulting. He recruits CEOs, COOs, and MDs and general managers. Oliver, welcome. Thank you very much, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. So can you give 30 to 60 seconds about your background and how you got to where you are? Sure. Well, in terms of the recruitment industry, I got into it a little over 20 years ago by complete accident, went into a local recruitment agency and looking for a job. And uh, they thought that I looked right. So they gave me a job as one of them. That was with one of the big national chains that uh, most of your listeners are probably aware of in the UK and internationally. I was with them for eight years, learned a lot, good and bad, if I'm honest. <laughs> And got to the point where I was a, a director of a, a region, that time recruiting senior finance posts, so finance directors primarily. Went independent in 2004, had a business which did broader commercial recruitment, again, at senior level. That was a partnership which actually ended in 2009. And my current business has been... I've been building for the last four years, which is capability consulting, which is really focused much more specifically on CEO and COO roles. Excellent. Okay, thank you for that. So let's kick off with the million dollar question. Why does recruitment have such a completely crappy reputation in business? The short answer is because too all too often, more than 50% of the time, it doesn't work. And when I say it doesn't work, I mean, it doesn't get the result that the, the client company is looking for. What do you mean by more than 50%? Well, apparently, a little over 50%, around 54% uh, of, I'm talking senior level, so executive level placements, fail within the first year. Ouch. That's expensive. Um, it's obscene. It really is. But then also, if you look at broadly, at uh, if you take something like the, I don't know if you're aware of the... Gallup survey that's done every three to four years, that what's what they call the state of the workforce. Right. The last one in the UK was done in 2017. So we're due for another one soon. And it showed that it evaluates engagement of the workforce. <laughs> and, you know, when I first looked at this, I kind of naturally assumed that perhaps 20 or 30% of people were not very happy in their job. And then I discovered just reading through this report, that it wasn't 20 or 30%. It wasn't even 50%. It was 92%. Shit. That means 8% of the UK workforce are proactive and enjoy their work. So people just turn up to get paid rather than people, because it's something that they feel aligns with their purpose, their values, and they enjoy it. Exactly. exactly. That's pretty shameful. And to be fair... I think the recruitment industry and the way it's set up has quite a lot of responsibility for that. I get that. I mean, I, I was a headhunter for 10 years and I saw some pretty shitty and shoddy practices. And this, this was back when the internet was burgeoning. So that's dating me quite badly. You know, we still used faxes and stuff like that. It, it did kind of feel like being a slaver in Rome and you were just peddling warm bodies. My fear is that an over-reliance on technology and keyword association is going to uh, drive a lot of behavior, which means that they're focusing 
on lagging indicators and not good predictors of success because things like skills, experience, historical results aren't particularly good indicators unless you see a consistent pattern and things like attitudes, beliefs, values, cognitive abilities, habits are much better predictors. Is that what being born out in your experience? Totally. You know, having been in this game for, for more than 20 years myself, one would assume that, that the recruitment industry would get better at it. But I think you're right. I think the technology factors... I love your optimism. <laughs> well, I am a, an eternal optimist at heart. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> but You're on the wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think there are aspects of technology now which are making, definitely, in my view, making it worse. Uh, you know, the, the use of ATS, uh, applicant tracking systems, which simply put a CV into a system, pick out a bunch of keywords, and then blast out 10 CVs to a so-called recruitment consultant who then throws them in front of the client and see if one sticks. That isn't a profession. That's just an automation. And it leaves hiring managers or executives feeling like they're just it's a complete waste of time. I mean, the biggest barrier that I tend to face when I'm speaking to a potential client is, is simply the perception of my industry because they're so used to receiving, well, I was going to use the word service, but it's not, it's not. It's, it's, it's service. Yeah, exactly. You know, my job as a recruiter is to save that person the time and the hassle of finding the right person. If I give them, or if a recruiter gives them more, to, you know, takes up more of their time, gives them more hassle, and then finds them the wrong, still finds them the wrong person, then it's not that surprising that the recruitment industry has such a bad reputation. Okay, so manage, hiring managers have to take their share of responsibility for this as well. So let, let's look at um, the process that companies go through in order to brief a recruiter, in my experience, and its um, I can't believe it's changed much, is that they knock out a seven-line brief and then they give a job description, which was cut and paste from something two, three, four jobs previous. And there's very little effort because they see recruitment as a chore, not the single most important function that any manager has. Yes. Am I far off? Not at all. I think there are certain things that are sort of, we, we perceive are traditional in the recruitment process. And job description is one of them. CVs are, is another of my sort of pet hates, really. It's a sales document. Why, why would you, it is a sales why, document, why you but have you, how many times do you see an interesting one? If the job description in the first place is so boring and so irrelevant to the actual objectives of that role, what chance does it have of appealing one of the few things that I, I'm not a marketer by any stretch of my imagination, but you know, one of the things that I do tend to I think of about marketing and then uh, the sales process is that it's not actually about persuading somebody to take the job. It's about discounting all the ones who aren't right for it. The one that's left over in terms of my own process, you know, I'll go through three, four, five hundred candidates, and I'm really just trying to tick them all off. I'm finding the the reasons why they're not right. Absolutely. Well, the rule is go for the no, try and disqualify out. And the yeah. ones that make it through to the bottom, then you have some form 
of uh, viability with in terms of prospecting for customers. And it wouldn't yeah. be any different from a recruitment perspective. Incidentally, if any of you are listening, there's a guy, he's very Marmite, called Mitch Sullivan, who runs a fabulous copywriting course on how to run copyright, uh, how to write adverts for candidates. And it's extremely good. So if any of you are thinking about recruiting and advertising, then definitely check out Mitch Sullivan. Oliver, help, help me out here then. The typical CV, it's a marketing document. We all know one of my favorite jokes when I was in recruitment is uh, what do you call a conversation between two adults where they're both lying through their teeth, a job interview. It just strikes me that the CV is a marketing document. The job description is a mismatched work of fiction because it bears little or no relation. If you're advising a hiring manager who is considering recruiting in the near future, what advice would you give them in terms of developing a job description that actually defines and designs the ideal candidate? If I can slightly backtrack in, in terms of what I feel is of most importance a manager or a leader is hiring, what people tend to go for is a list of skills, a list you know, that match the, a list of responsibilities which they put in the job description. And then they go out to find an, another document, you know, the CV document, which hopefully lists as many of those, they can tick the boxes. He's done this, he's done that, he's done that. What they fail to do is ask why. And I think the first question really in in this process should be, why am I recruiting the job? What does it actually need to achieve? What are the objectives? And then why would somebody want to do it at their highest capability? My belief is that we all have an element of genius in us. We're all absolutely brilliant at something. Most of us, most people in the workforce, I mean, the, the, the Gallup statistics I mentioned earlier show this. We never get there. We never use that brilliance because we're doing stuff that we just don't really give a monkey's about. So the hiring manager should look at what, what first, what do they really need to achieve in this role? And that probably blots out 80% of what was written on that original job description, which, which <laughs> should have been put in the bin previously. Um, and then, like I say, why does somebody really want to do it? If, if I'm looking for a, a COO, for example, I can go out and I can, you know, with the power of the internet, LinkedIn, et cetera, I can find at least 500 candidates who on paper could do the job, who'd be pretty average, you know, who, who'd be competent rather. Now what I want to do is pick the one who will tap into that genius, which is a combination of their strengths. We all have a bit, things that we're just bloody good at doing. Then we have to have a connection with the business and, and its objectives. We need to feel its values. We need to share them. We need to understand its purpose. And when you have those, that combination, that person's going to be on fire. They're not just going to be talented. They're going to be delivering the full, you know, both barrels of that talent. If you're not familiar with it, Gallup have produced a profile called the StrengthsFinder 2.0. And there is a book that you can buy on Amazon. Make sure you buy a brand new copy because at the back is a tear out pin with a unique number and you can only use it once. And the challenge is to find people who 
can play to their strengths. I did this about, I think, 12, 13 years ago. And I restructured all of my work around my top five strength themes. And since then, there has not been a day go by where I haven't spent 95 to 100% of every single working day doing what I love, doing it well, getting great feedback. Time flies for me. When it's done, then I can't wait to do it again. And that's the very definition of a strength. And I get to spend every day doing that. And when you're recruiting and when you're assessing your own teams, I'd strongly urge you to go through the Strengths Finder with each of your team members and find out where their strengths are, because it will also highlight where the gaps are. And the key is to recruit people and surround yourself with people whose strengths make the weaknesses in your, in your team irrelevant. And that way you end up with a much stronger, richer, more diverse team instead of recruiting in your own image, only weaker. Absolutely spot on. I use the uh, Clifton Strengths Finder uh, a lot myself. And I think something you touched on there, which I just reinforce, is for the hiring manager to use it on themselves. Absolutely. You know, when they're recruiting, they often think what they, you know, they want to know the strengths of the people that they're uh, that they're hiring. But like you say, like you say, what you really want to do is reinforce. You know, a leader wants to reinforce their own or cover the gaps themselves. Yeah. One of the biggest barriers that I find in in terms of the level of recruitment that I do at CEO and COO level is that my client often wants to hide behind their own weaknesses, mm. um, and what I really want them to do is fess up and then I can actually find the person who's really going to reinforce anything that they don't have. I heard uh, one of your previous podcasts, Drew Agostino. Agostino, yeah. And he had he said something amazing which which really impressed me actually was that he had around 20 or so jobs, you know, you know, on his sheet, things that he was responsible for. And he and his COO or his co-founder went through that list and they paired it down to just three the three that really fitted his strengths and really he knew he could knock out of the park. And that is absolutely brilliant, that, that approach. So uh, interestingly enough, I'm releasing the podcast with his partner, Greg Sklut, this evening. So it's oh. today, the 9th of March. So be out and out this evening, but you'll pick it up this interview in about three weeks. For any of you who are interested in that, it's uh, StrengthsFinder 2.0 by Tom Rath, R-A-T-H. And it's a brilliant book. (laughs) Now, we've identified that we need to find people whose strengths make our weaknesses irrelevant. We need to subsume our ego, which means we need to be vulnerable when we are recruiting. And we need to look at the purpose of the job. What is the intended outcome? Once you've done that, then when you're going out and you're searching for candidates, how do you put together a assessment process or a questioning process in order to be able to uncover those things? Because those are are qualities that it may be very difficult for someone who's not trained and experienced to look for. So what's your advice in terms of developing your questioning, your investigative side? in order to be able to uncover those qualities that you do want? I think the first thing I'd say is is the avoidance of leading questions or leading topics. So, for example, my first contact with a potential candidate is either by 
probably initially by email or, or uh, maybe a LinkedIn message or something like that, or maybe even a text message to their phone number. But then when I get them on the call, I don't start by talking about whatever it is I'm trying to hire. I don't lead with that information because human nature says that, that you know, whether they want the job or not, they're going to try and tell me how brilliant they would be for it. And I don't actually want them to do that. I want really to know what's behind their own ambitions, their own goals, what, what will truly motivate them in the next role. So I go in asking questions about how their, their career is progressing at the moment, what their aims are, what their plan is for the, for the next couple of years, what's, what's the next step. I try and keep the questions to as minimum as possible, to be honest, in the sense that my aim is to get them talking and then try and shut myself up as, as much as I can and let them, let them tell me all about what, they, what their aims are in life. And you understand pretty quickly when you hear those, that sort of gut response from somebody, if you know the organisation you're hiring for, whether that's going to be a fit or not. At an executive level, one would hope that they're mature enough and integrated enough to be able to articulate what, that, what they're looking for. But again, given that 52 or 54% of executive hires fail within the first year, that suggests that they haven't necessarily been able to assert themselves and assert what they're looking for. So what questions does that really raise about their competence? I think there's some real problems with the tradition, the way that recruitment has, you know, as a process has evolved or hasn't evolved rather. You were talking, I think you mentioned a moment ago about that situation in an interview where everybody's trying to sell themselves. You know, I, I call it the interview facade. Yeah. And it's a totally unnatural situation. There's very little incentive in that situation for people to tell the truth. And I don't mean that, that, you know, that people are liars. I just mean that there's more of an incentive to tell what's positive. You know, the company sells itself, sells the role, the candidate sells themselves, and then they come to an agreement, somebody gets offered the job, and three weeks into the job, they realize that what they had been told at the interview was complete bollocks. Yes, thank you. (laughs) You know, there needs to be a serious look at the transparency of that process up front. If there's a recruiter involved, that recruiter needs to know and understand the role, the business, the team, the purpose, the motivation you know, behind what that, what that team is, so that when they're face-to-face with a potential candidate, they can actually recognize, you know, if they, if they haven't had that education about the business in the first place, how the hell are they going to recognize whether the candidate, potential candidate they're sitting in front of is going to be a match. My favorite opening question for a, a sales interview is, Oliver, really been looking forward to meeting you. Welcome. Over to you. I want them to sell themselves into the job that I'm hiring for. And what that means is I want them to ask questions. That gives yeah. me a, a real insight into what drives them, how they behave, what they're going to do when they're selling on our behalf. But I don't see any reason why that wouldn't work nicely for a CFO, a COO, a head of engineering. They may be slightly thrown off by it, but have them ask you questions. That gives it, that tells you where their mind is. And yeah. it gives you insight into where they've come from. I wouldn't call myself a, an expert on sales by any means, but I think there is a connection between the recruitment industry and 
sales processes in that in this respect that I think I've heard you say but previously on 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 the podcast that salespeople are much more successful when they listen than when they're talking and I think recruiters need to do quite a bit of that too what you've done with that particular question is basically yeah literally ask them to talk and what what you really want to do is get somebody without leading in any way without telling them what to tell you because what most people do is you know they'll come up with a question like I don't know Give me an example where you solved a customer service problem and how you de- dealt with it. And that how you dealt with it thing basically just gives them, you know, this is a chance for me to sell myself. This is a chance for me to tell, tell you how brilliant I am. But if you simply start your, your conversation with that candidate in the way that you did you know, over to you, at some point during that, they may well describe a customer service issue. And the probability is they didn't always do a brilliant job of fixing it. But at very least, they may be learned from it. You want to know, when I'm recruiting, I, I want to know, can they be honest about that? If they do, when they do make mistakes, because we all do, are they going to learn from it? Or are they just going to cover it up and shove it under the carpet and, and pass the problem on to somebody else? Those are sort of character traits that will work in one organization, but not in another. When I do the, um, my kind of briefing process, when I take on a role, one of the things that I want to know is what I call the X factors in that organization. And those are the, they're closely tied to the values, but they're the way that people will act in a certain kind of situation. So if I give you an example, a recent client in the construction sector, there was a family atmosphere. You know, there were 450 people in the business. You know, it's a reasonably significant business. But everybody had a real pride, a real connection to what that business was trying to achieve. And one of the things that the chief execs first said to me was, I could not tolerate so-called ivory tower types, people who had more concern for their own progress, for their own ego than they did for the business. And he gave me an example of where uh, a senior director had been on site and a laborer had a go at him about some, some health and safety issue, completely within his rights to do so. And this director had turned around and said, you can't speak to me like that. I'm a director. Huh. The, the you chief know exec- who I am. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the chief exec told me if he had heard that firsthand, that director, board director, would have been sacked on the spot. And as it was, as it turned out, three months later, he did leave the business, that particular director. What was important was that that guy, that, that chief exec, knew those character traits, those X factors that really mattered in his business. Again, this is really interesting because the parallels with the work that both of us do, when you're looking for vulnerability and you're looking for someone who's got humility, a great question is, well, Oliver, why aren't you a better salesman? Why aren't you a better salesperson? And what's really interesting is the ones with brittle egos will come up with crap like, oh, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. That's an instant, thank you very much, we've done. And I want people who know that they're not the finished article. And uh, in fact, my wife just posted a really interesting article from Harvard Business Review about women being willing to take on more senior roles and take risk because often women resist the temptation to take on a role because they don't feel fully qualified, whereas a man is more likely to say, well, you know, I'm about 30%. I can probably wing most of it until I work it out. 
And yeah. again, the skills are definitely the least important. Well, actually, I lie. Experience is the least important in my experience. Yeah. If they come from a particular sector, so what? Six meetings is probably all it will take to learn all the language that you need to come off as credible. And experience historical results, again, unless there is a pattern of them, unless those results are the byproduct of habit, then chances are where they talk to you about the results, they will often be one-offs. Yeah. So what you need to do is you need to get multiple examples that they can rattle off in quick succession. Yeah. And if you can't do that, then it's not a habit. And habits are definitely the best predictors of success. What does someone need to do every day, every week, every month, every quarter, every year in this role to be successful? What are the three or four things that they have to do every day, every week, every month? What are the things that they must never do? Otherwise, it will derail their position. It will eliminate their credibility and it will mean you've made a wrong hire. And too often, what people are looking for is something formulaic. And you said the checklist. What you're going to get there is someone who on the surface, you said you mentioned the facade, on the surface looks like they're a fit. But what's the typical cost of a wrong hire at executive level? I haven't done specific research into pure numbers. It's a huge multiple of that person's salary, for example. It's not just the cost of their of their salary for that period. It's not just the cost of the recruiter and the time of the person hiring. It's the things that haven't been done right that would have taken out the opportunity cost, I guess, is the way you, you, you put at it. Yeah. It's almost immeasurable. But it's certainly at the level that I hire at, it's the difference between success and failure potentially of that entire business. And sales environment, one good salesperson can make a business and 10 or 50 not very good salesmen, salespeople can maybe just can keep it afloat. But unless you've got somebody who really is really switched on and really connected to what that business is trying to achieve, the chances of success are slim. Well, I've put together a calculator around sales and in enterprise sales. So big ticket, complex, sophisticated sales, multiple buyers, multiple people on the sales side that may also include partners. and legal, marketing, you know, all of that. If you get away with 35 times salary, you're doing well, and up to 125 times. And I'm happy to share the calculator with people. When you then take a manager, they could screw up five of those good salespeople and turn them from A players to C players in the space of a couple of quarters by demoralizing them. I was speaking to somebody earlier on this month And the founder is a first-time entrepreneur. The VP of sales is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Turned the whole ship around, uh, made it through COVID, and he's pissed off. He's genuinely pissed off because the founder, she is somebody who is quite technical. And it's one of those kind of environments where it's very specialized. And doesn't really value sales. And so, exactly. And this is part of the problem. I think one of the challenges that you often get is that technicians don't really understand that sales is the lifeblood of your business. 
Other, the rest of the salaries don't get paid unless sales operates and is doing their job. Now, what's really interesting with this kind of scenario, and I was speaking to uh, my pal Daniel Marcos, who is the co-pilot of the Scale-Up Institute and Growth Institute with uh, Vern Harnish. And uh, he won't take on first-time entrepreneurs because they don't know what they don't know. So there's Uh, a real lesson here. If you're a recruiter and you're going to be working with first-time entrepreneurs, probably refer it on to a competitor because they're probably going to be having to, you'll probably have to replace somebody within three months because they will be really pissed off very quickly. And the turnover will be quite high. So you can't necessarily make a profit if you're having to constantly replace. And they'll blame you. Do you know a book called Rocket Fuel by a guy called Gino Wickman? I've heard of it. I haven't read it yet. It's in, uh, it's in my list of to-dos. Gino Wickman wrote another book called Traction, which is a, uh, in I've which he outlines Traction. this thing called the Entrepreneurial Operating System, yeah. which is a really simple operating system for, uh, for growth businesses. I like it because of its simplicity. And one of its core elements is this relationship between what he calls the visionary, usually the CEO, and what he calls the integrator. The integrator is the right hand, the person who organizes, structures, puts process into the business, something that typically visionary types may not find as their own strength. So when I deal with those first-time businesses, the kind that you've described, I'll often get one somebody come to me and say, okay, I need a, uh, an FD. Get some numbers. I need some metrics. I need... And so they, they put a job description that they've just taken off Google for an FD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they think, you know, this is the solution. So what I, what I often do at that stage, and whether I get, you know, whether I end up finding the candidate or not is, is kind of irrelevant, but I, I'll introduce that operating system to them and suggest that they get somebody like that who can put some meat on the bones of the business and actually help them understand what's going on. They probably don't need an FD. They need somebody who understands how a business actually runs. I think you've touched on another really critical question, which is, is the job that we think we want to hire the right position? And in fact, should we be hiring for something else? Do you come across that a lot? I was going to say 80%. It's more than that. At least 90% of the time, probably all the time. Firstly, the job description that I'm given, I don't mean this in a rude way, but it, goes, it, it, it pretty much goes in the bin because they're wrong. It's just it's written in the wrong way and it, and, it, and it doesn't actually cover what they really want to achieve. So I'll take that CEO or, or, or board, that whoever's sort of asked me to do the hiring project and take them back through what really needs to be achieved. And so what they thought they needed is almost never quite what comes out of the, pro- of, of, of the, of the process. But I'd say it's, it's, it works the same way in terms of when you look at the candidates. They are almost never, again, I'd say it's 99% of the time, never the person that looks right on paper or looks best on paper. I can find a classic CV. And when I started off in recruitment, that was, you know, I thought that was my job was to find the person who looks, wow, this person's just, you know, he's got exactly this, got exactly that. But those people um, just never work out. I'll give you an example. This isn't a piece of recruitment that I did, but I picked up the pieces after a client had you know, had an experience. He'd built his business over 
for seven or eight years. It's doing 25 million turnover, significant profit margins. He was doing extremely well. And he decided that this was this business was capable of 100 million plus. But he recognized that he wasn't the right person to lead it to that, that level. He went to his marketplace. He got two. They're in the entertainment industry. He got two big hitters, people with amazing CVs from the industry. He paid them a million pounds each over two years, plus a significant equity involvement in, in the future growth of the business, with the objective of taking it from 25 to 100 million. Less than a year later, the business was turning over 6 million and, and gone from millions of profit to several hundred thousand in losses. Well, uh, again, be, beware what you wish for. There's a sadly out of print, but uh, you can still get it secondhand book called Dangerous Company by Charlie Madigan and James O'Shea. And it's how the big four or the big six at the time managed to take companies from being fabulous to being practically broke or bankrupt. One that stuck in my mind for the last 20 years was Figgy International. The founder and father had built it to 300 million. And then they brought KPMG in, who uh, had this program called the World Class Business. And in three years, they were turning over 3 million under the uh, tutelage of the sun. Very impressive. That kind of reduction, Weight Watchers would be delighted by. Um, (laughs) I think the lesson here is the problem the prospect brings you is never the real problem. So the role that they bring you is almost never going to be what they think they want. And very often what they need is an outside perspective to challenge their thinking. And ideally, this is what the board should be doing for them. So my question is, why is it that the board doesn't pick up on this and challenge and say, well, hang on a second. Why would we bring someone in from our industry where they have probably come from a much larger, very different organization and expect them to be able to grow our small or medium-sized business into something like the one that they came from when they don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the frameworks, they don't have the systems, and they're going to have to basically roll up their sleeves. It does strike me as slightly ludicrous. I think it's quite interesting you say that because I think internally boards can quite often play it safe. Which is the most dangerous thing you can do. Yeah, literally the most pointless thing you can do. And one of the things that I find quite interesting is that I always interview, certainly all the board members, anyone who's sort of likely to be influential on the post. And when I've briefed the person who's taking responsibility for the hiring, they will tell me what their expectation is and what the objectives are. And then when I go to the, the other members of the board, they often will tell me something different. And they haven't put their neck out in front of their colleagues on the board, and they rely on me to do it on their behalf. And luckily, I'm thick-skinned enough that I can I can put my neck out. And if you know if if they want to chop my head off, well, you know that's the way it goes. But they can trust that external influence to dish the dirt on their behalf. Well, this is really interesting. I interviewed Pierre Van Vaporer, who is the chief commercial officer for a very fast-growing medical marijuana business. And he uh, cited uh, a study that suggested that 42% of board members said 
that their board would function more uh, effectively if only they were aligned. <laughs> yeah. Now, given that there is so much politicking by the sounds of it, there are things that left are left unsaid. If you're going to be recruiting CEOs and chief operating officers, presumably one of the qualities that they must have is the ability to encourage constructive conflict and allow people to fail but not let the business fail. Because it strikes me that if they're not capable of doing those two things, which will require them to be vulnerable, to punish hiding mistakes but not making them, that really takes some guts. So what are the qualities that you're looking for to find somebody like that? It's a really interesting one, that, because I think that, you know, we, we talked about earlier about um, purpose and values. And I think that what the business needs to do, what that leader needs to do is, is create a situation where people are fighting for the same objective, where they share the purpose. And that purpose overall is, is a joint one. Then it's, it's not so personal. It's not about your individual performance. You know, if I'm working for the same goal that my other colleagues on the board are, and we're all clear, really clear on that, I can put my hand up and say, well, we haven't reached X objective because we're all in it together. It's that siloing of different parts of the business, which gets everybody basically putting up their armor and putting their, their shell to protect themselves. And then they start holding bits back and then they start maybe blaming somebody else or somebody something else that didn't happen in the business is responsible. But if they have a real sense of shared objective, shared purpose, that ego, you know, you talked about ego earlier on, it's difficult to destroy an ego, but it becomes less dominant in the, in the conversation. This then comes to uh, the question about how decisions are made at board level. Because I, I think often what you see is that you have uh, one or two dominant voices. Yeah. And other board members withhold. And when things go wrong, well, you know, I knew that was going to happen. But by then it's too well, too damn well late. So it, it, it strikes me. Uh, in fact, I had a really interesting conversation yesterday with a lady called Jen Ferguson. And she very kindly sent me her ebook called Disrupt the Silos. And it, it's all about the silos that exist between sales and marketing. And if anyone wants a copy of it, then please let me know and I'll be happy to send it. It just strikes me that there are so many gaps between uh, the silos in organizations. And uh, one of the most innovative ways of handling it that I've ever come across, I interviewed a fascinating gentleman called Patrick Lindqvist, and he's the chief innovation advisor for the city of Helsingborg. And uh, he built his team. And essentially, they've got to turn Helsingborg into a a center of innovation for Europe by 2022. And when he was building his teams around transport, for example, he didn't employ anyone from transport. He hired people who used public transport so that they could give the customer perspective. And then they bring in outside uh, experts where needed. But I think the best innovation was he hired managers on his team whose sole responsibility is managing the gaps. Now, isn't that clever? Now, I think 
Given the current circumstance with COVID and the restructure, I just saw Fujitsu is now letting go of 50% of their office space. Now, the way people work is going to change dramatically over the next few years. This has been a catalyst for that. And we're going to see huge upsurge in innovation and in management and leadership. So what are the questions people aren't asking that they should about recruitment? Well, just specifically related to what you brought up there about the changes that are coming about from coronavirus and you know things like office space, a lot of businesses are, are questioning whether they need their office space. But I also think that they need to be questioning how they're using people and the capability those people have got, whether many of the people in their business actually are the right people to be there. You probably re- remember Jim Collins wrote a Good to Great, and he talks about seats and having the right people in the, in, the, in the right seats on the bus. And I think there's a big question at the moment in many, or there should be a big question at the moment, about not just have they got the right people, in, but have they got the right seats? And I think there are, there are an awful, you know, this comes back a little bit to what we talked about with job descriptions. There's an awful lot of jobs that exist. And really, are they needed? We're not talking about being brutally brutal to one's workforce and getting rid of people and putting loads of people unemployed i'm not but if you recognize that somebody's role actually doesn't have a great deal of value towards the business you're doing that person a service by letting them find something better because nobody wants to be in a job that doesn't have a purpose that doesn't have a value you know that person is as soon as somebody you know an employee recognizes that they're doing something that fundamentally doesn't really do, do you know doesn't achieve much What's that going to do for their uh, their own sense of well-being? Well, you've pulled the pin, so I'm just going to lob the grenade. If you have not used this period to take a blank sheet of paper and look at your business and redesign it as if you are starting from scratch, then I think you have missed a massive opportunity. Identify who would you still want on payroll? Well, in fact, to take Oliver's point, first of all, first of all, design the positions. What are the positions that we actually need? And in order to fulfill our purpose, our mission, our goals, our targets. And if we understand what those positions are, then we can see how we can retrofit the people we have on payroll and see whether or not they are either capable and willing to fulfill those functions now or with some training and coaching to grow into them. If they can't, can they be moved into another role within your organization? That's the fair and reasonable thing for you to do. If they can't fulfill either of those, then the decision has already been made that you will be doing your business a disservice and you will be doing them a disservice by them and encourage them, give them training, help them to lead and find a role that's better for them. I suspect there are a lot of organizations, certainly in sales, where they've developed process and those processes haven't been reviewed for years. And when a process hasn't been reviewed and you do it habitually, it becomes a habit. And as Ogmandino says in his book, The Greatest Salesman in the World, you're a slave to your habits, so you may as well make them good ones. And 
I think one of the most important things that you can do is you can look at your processes. And I would suggest every six months, the people who are involved, who have to live them. Because processes tell you what not to do. Culture tells you what to do. And I think it's really important that you take the time to review your processes and look at your culture. Is it still fit for purpose? Does it still meet the mission's purpose? Um, And if it doesn't, then you have to question, why not? Are you the right person to lead that business? Because again, very often, if you're a founder or you're a chief executive, it's very difficult to make yourself redundant. But I think that's what the courageous leaders will do. I'm not suggesting, my suspicion is that if a thousand people listen to this podcast, maybe one might even consider it and then they'll get cold feet. But that's the right thing to do. If you go for that process of, in in a sense, trying to make yourself redundant, at very least, you'll be uncovering those gaps that you talked about earlier. Then you can focus on filling those gaps. I couldn't agree more. I think it's so important. So back, back to my question then, what are the three questions that people should ask but don't? Well, the first generally is why? We've talked a bit about this. You know, Why are you actually recruiting? What does that need, really need to achieve? It's so easy for a process, a recruitment process just to be filling a seat and what it really needs to be doing is working towards a specific objective, working towards a specific goal. On that note, I have a client, Jim Harvey, um, and he's a very phlegmatic Yorkshireman. And uh, he asked the question when he was struggling to work out uh, whether to keep someone. And the question that came out of his mouth is, is he better than an empty chair? And <laughs> the conclusion was no. <laughs> it's sad but true in a lot of situations often having um, no breath is better than having bad breath do not fall yeah. for the lie that having bad breath is better than no breath in any seat better yeah. wait and get the right person you know once you've got a firm reason for actually making a hire you know what what do i want to achieve from this and one of the biggest barriers that i see with the kind of recruitment level that i work on but it probably applies at all other levels as well, is then having the the guts and the self-awareness of that hirer to be prepared to let go of some of that responsibility, pass that on, you know, to delegate. Delegation is such a, it's an easy word to use, but one of the things that I see, find CEOs in particular, often find they feel like such a responsibility, you know, CEO role, we talked about Drew Agostino uh, having 20 different jobs. You know, it's so diverse and so broad. And it can feel really hard for that person to let some of those things go. And I, I, I'm often in conversation with a CEO for 12 months or more, really, while, while they, you know, I have to give them the time to, to accept that they're, you know, if I go out and recruit a COO for them, for example, but they're not prepared to let go of some of those aspects, some of those responsibilities, things that, frankly, they're not the best person to be doing. If they can't let it go to somebody who's better than them, then there's point, you know, all it's going to do is create frustration. Mike Michalowicz, I think it was in his book Clockwork, came up with this beautifully elegant model. You've clearly got it. And it's the four Ds. So take a blank sheet of paper now, draw quadrants, and in the top left-hand corner, write the word do, the right-hand box, write the word delegate. Yeah. The next box down, decide. And the last box, design. Now, 
I challenge any senior executive to spend two weeks and each time you move on to one next uh, new task, identify exactly which of those four boxes you're spending your time. Because chances are, if you're complaining that you're tired, you're run ragged, you're so busy, then you're spending way too much time in doing. You aren't delegating and you're spending too much time deciding on stuff that if you trusted your people and you trained them and you coached them, then they could make those decisions. And so that delegation would be something that you would be comfortable with because you should be spending more of your time on designing systems, processes, roles that you are going to need in six months, a year, two years, three years, five years down the road, designing your business. But very often, people get sucked into the daily grind of doing. And the minute you do that, you are now a bottleneck, you're a liability to your business, and you're also probably guilty of one of two things. Either you're a rescuer. Now, a rescuer helps without boundaries or permission. Uh, They tolerate non-performance. They're mollycoddling because they will not confront the difficult conversations that need to be had. And they um, make the fundamental mistake of hanging on to people that they should not. So I know Oliver has an opinion on this, which we'll drag you in on in a second. The other thing you might become is a persecutor. And a persecutor punishes people for speaking their mind, for challenging them, for getting things wrong. They don't nurture them. And you need to understand that as a leader, as a manager, it is your job to help other people achieve their full potential, to do their best work. It's not your job to spend your time being a supervisor. That's why you hire supervisors for supervising. Supervisory uh, as a function of your four leadership hats, supervising, training, coaching, and mentoring. Supervising should be the smallest function. If you've hired the best people, they will do a good job. But then your number two job is to get the best out of them. Make sure they have the tools and resources they need and the authority they need in order to be able to do their best work every day. Then help them clear the roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. If you're the chief executive, you're the idiot I'm talking about. So now the problem with persecutors is what they do is they stifle risk-taking and innovation. People will play it safe and they will do the minimum necessary not to get a a bollocking. So let's take the point about um, hanging on to a wrong hire. What's the the effect of that? There's the obvious immediate financial effect. But when you take into account what the plan was for that opportunity, where that business should be going, and that wrong hire – isn't just not taking it in that direction. They are becoming a direct barrier to that direction. When you're talking about a hire that's close to a CEO, so a COO maybe or a CFO or somebody on their senior management team, those roles will have a very significant impact on where that business is meant to be going. And you you talked about the CEO being focused on what their real job, that design element of what their their job really should be. What's the cost, also the cost of them not doing that? If that business doesn't have the clear vision, which is part of that design process, if they don't have a real strategy of where that business is going, again, part of that design process, CEO's job, it's not just, let's say it was the COO who was the wrong hire. Now, 
everyone else in that business, because the vision and the purpose and the strategy are, are unclear or even wrong, everybody's working in the wrong direction. Ambiguity is the mother of all fuck-ups. Yeah. Ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. Absolutely. A disaster. You could have a business, let's say, just because my maths is really appalling, let's say you've got 100 people in the business, just because it makes it easier for, you know, to work out percentages and things like that. But you've got 100 people, and now, because the clarity of that direction from the top is wrong, everybody is working now towards a different objective. That means that they are proactively taking away from where that business should be going. And unfortunately, I think most businesses have a situation like that. So if you, know, if you could achieve 100% growth, you're now achieving, if you're lucky, you might, not, you might be achieving some growth instead of, instead of 100%. Well, it's actually more divisive than that because Price's Law, which my wife keeps telling me I'm banging on about, but it's really <laughs> important. Price's Law states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. If you have 100 people, 10 of them will be doing 50% of the production. And yeah. those are the people that you will end up losing. Yeah. And that has a massive impact. So you're left with 90 who produce 50%. And chances are you'll then recruit in haste instead of taking your time and designing the right candidate and getting the right candidate on board. And then that becomes a spiral to the bottom because your top talent will not hang around. If your leadership is crap and there's ambiguity and there's dysfunction and there's uh, unhelpful, destructive structural tension between departments, your top people will be the ones that lead. Now, if you lose one A player, if you lose one top talent, there is a 50% probability you will lose another one within six months. Because they see that the, you know, the grass is greener somewhere else. And they just it can't be influenced. bothered to put up with this crap anymore. Yeah. So it's really crucial that as leaders, you are absolutely crystal clear about yeah. what you are trying to achieve. And this is why purpose is so important. All of us so right. Organizations with a purpose massively outperform organizations without one. And it's the same thing when you're designing your uh, proposition. You need to understand who your ideal customer is, not the total addressable market, where you might be a 70, 80% fit. Yeah. Who are those customers where you are 100% fit and you were built, you're designed to serve them? And then serve them brilliantly, to listen to them. And again, I cannot stress enough, as an organization, if you punish people for speaking their mind, so that example that you gave of the construction worker speaking to the director and speaking his mind, if you don't have some form of feedback where you can listen to the people who are at the sharp end, chances are you will be operating from an ivory tower. And when you do, what that effectively means is that you're cutting out you're cutting off the best resource that you have. The people that you should listen to are the people at the sharp end, your best customers, because they're raving fans and they can articulate why, the people who fired you and hate you, people who are leaving your business, you should absolutely listen to. And if you're not listening to those people, and also people whose behavior has changed. So this is another thing. Why is it that so many organizations still operate annual appraisals if they do them at all. That's crazy. 
if it takes 12 months to be able to give feedback, then you're not hearing anything that's current. And you know, 12 months has already passed since the last time. So it's, it just strikes me as madness that management doesn't really understand how to manage and leadership doesn't really understand how to lead. Why in this day and age, given all the fabulous material that's out there, do they still make these horrific acts of self-sabotage happen? I think a lot of this starts from, from the pressure that CEOs traditionally feel under to be that person who leads everything in the business. The example of somebody who had, Drew, who had 20 uh, job under his uh, responsibility. If a CEO can actually respect their role and actually take, take a step back and say, what, what do I really need to achieve? What I need, need to do is I need to design this business. I need to look at vision. I need to look at strategy. Where are we going? And then the second bit is my view of a CEO's responsibility is communication. They take responsibility specifically for designing the future of that business and where it's going. The rest of their job is to communicate it. I've heard you say many times about communication. It's much more about listening than it is about talking. There is a degree of passing on the message, certainly. But 80% of what you were just describing then was really listening to what's going on in the business, what's going on in your marketplace, and being aware so that you can then, in your design process, you can adapt, you can change, you can move the needle a bit, you know, in a different direction. If any of you feel the urge, and I cannot stress enough the fabulous insight and quality of all the books that I've ever read by Patrick Lencioni, and that's L-E-N-C-I-O-N-I. The first one you must read is called The Five Temptations of a CEO. And it's the mistakes that CEOs make that cause them to basically implode. Silos, politics, and turf wars is another one. The truth about employee engagement. Genuinely brilliant. The five dysfunctions of a team and death by meeting. The three signs of a miserable job. The ideal team player. These are just fabulous. They're incredibly accessible. And if you haven't read them or listened to them, you are doing yourself a massive disservice. But start with the five um, temptations of a CEO. Oliver, we're coming to the top of our hour, I'm afraid. Tell me something. What are you struggling with at the moment? I really, really enjoy what I do. And I like to think, you know, I've got an extremely good record, get great results, et cetera. What I'm really bad at is getting over, getting past the, the kind of perception that my industry holds. Recruitment is not a greatly respected industry. And I'm not particularly proactive as a sales or marketing person for my business. So all my business comes through recommendation, word of mouth. And, you know, I do very well. I have a good business. I'm quite happy with that, but I can't predict it. I can't control it. So I think if I could do anything better or improve something in in terms of my business, it would be sort of visibility and communication with my real core target markets so that they would understand that they could actually trust somebody in recruitment. A couple of things that you can do straight off the bat. The first thing is if there is a bomb waiting to blow, you light the fuse. So always raise the objection. If you always raise the objections, then you don't have to handle them. 
you have the prospect handle them. So, Oliver, I'm afraid this is a cold call. I'm a headhunter, and the chances are you probably want to hang up. Yeah. Would that be fair? Yeah. Let me tell you in 30 seconds the purpose of my call, and then you can either speak for two more minutes or hang up on me and we can part as friends. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. Okay. Three reasons why you won't want to talk to me. First one is you never use external recruiters because they have a terrible reputation. You've been burnt by them and you just don't trust them. Would that be a fair statement? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So <laughs> and there's no point taking this conversation any further, is there? And then let them talk. Well, play it with me. Oh, I see. You know, if I could find one that I trusted, I'd, I'd, I'd run, you know, go with it for sure. You know, I definitely need recruit, help with recruitment. I just can't trust any of you. Understood. And it, in fairness to you, you're probably not right not to trust most of us. Yeah. Now, the second reason you won't want to work with me is I am eye-wateringly, sphincter-bobbingly expensive. Whatever you thought you were going to pay a recruiter if you could find one that you trusted, I'm likely to cost you somewhere between two to five times more than any other recruiter out in the marketplace. Is that a reason for us not to talk? If you were worth it, I'd pay whatever it needs. It's important. Really? I've had that response quite a few times. Really? I, 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 am, I am more expensive. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. But I'm, so, so you've got to play it with me. So yeah. my response to that is, really? Yeah. You'd pay five um, times as much? If you can show me the value in, what I, in the difference it'll make coming for my business and for me going okay. forward, if you can show that you're going to help me really achieve the objectives and we've got some pretty big objectives, then it will be worth it. I'll take your word. Third reason, working with me is not easy. Most recruiters will typically, and I understand why they do it, but they'll typically take a brief from you. Yeah. Odds are the role that you think you want to hire isn't the role that you want to hire. And you will have opinions that will differ from your board. Yeah. And if we are going to work together, I'm going to need to be able to challenge you. I'm going to need access to you and I'm going to need access to your board members in order to ensure that the role that we go out and find the person for is actually the person who's going to help you deliver the outcome that you want. Now, the process, therefore, takes time and you need to be accessible. And in a minute, you're going to tell me you're too busy for that. Tell me you're too busy. To make real progress, I'm not too busy, but again, it's going to need to be, uh, you're going to need to show that you can do it. Okay, but I'm already starting on the back foot. What is it you'd need to see from me for you to be confident that it makes sense to invite me in to kickstart this process? And if at the end of that conversation, you don't feel that I'm the right person to help, you can tell me to sling my hook. But if you do feel that I'm different in the right way, and that you can trust me to deliver the outcome that you're looking for, then we agree terms and we get started. Does that sound fair? Definitely. Okay, so what do you need to hear or uh, have happen over the next five minutes for you to be convinced that it makes sense to invest 90 minutes to two hours of your time for me to take the brief and to talk you through the process that you're going to need to follow? I need to know a little bit about your process how this would work, what makes you think that you're any different from the guys who've let me down in the past? Okay, I can't convince you of any of that. You have to decide that. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Of course. 
lead with the objections and just blow them up. Yeah, it's great. Cool. Okay. So tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Oliver, age 23. What (laughs) choice bit of advice would you whisper to him? Well, firstly, how did you know me so well when I was 23? (laughs) I was 23 Uh, once. (laughs) (laughs) Although my children don't think I ever was. I was I was I was running restaurants, managing restaurants when I was 23. I would say don't pay so much attention to the rules. Don't pay so much attention to the to the ladder. The what everybody tells you is the way to to make progress. Think about what you really want and then spend committed practice into it, into developing it. When I see people who are really exceptional in, in what they do, it's because you mentioned strengths. You know, looking at using something like Clifton Strengths would be would have been a great tool for me when I was twenty three years old. Using those strengths towards something that you have a genuine. I know this word passion is 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 overused and and, and it's you know, it becomes very general. But the way I think of it is doing something that you actually love doing. I've heard you talk in the past about uh, your own efforts to, in uh, your own work in sales, for example, and it's something that you absolutely love doing. I know, you know you've been doing it plenty of time, so you've become extremely skilled in it. And when you do something that you really enjoy, you keep practicing it until you get, you know, because frankly, you're not going to be, you know, no one's good at things, or rarely good at things straight away. And you're never so, the finished article. Exactly. When you can find something that where the practice is the fun bit, then you're onto onto something good because over a period of time you will become. That's where uh, what I call the genius zone come, comes out. You know, when somebody is engaged and aligned in something that they're truly brilliant at, and they can just keep on getting better. And I remember, do you know Dan Pink, the the, the writer yeah. Dan Pink? He did a book called Drive about uh, motivation at work, and one of them there is uh, mastery. And I think that's an underrated motivation people do actually love being really good at what they do or or at least getting really good at what they do absolutely if that process can be what turns you on as it were at work then you're onto something really great on monday mornings i'm often awake at half past three four o'clock because i can't wait for the week to begin it's ludicrous i am that sad honestly but it, it it just strikes me as crazy that you would spend you know 8 12 14 hours 16 hours a day doing something you hate in order that you can numb yourself for the weekend it just strikes me as crazy okay tell me this you you've mentioned you know wickland rocket fuel and traction what are you watching reading listening to that really influences you at the moment you think yeah that's great material other people would benefit from I've got a book open at the moment, which I think I found really valuable. And also, this is sort of busman's holiday kind of thing. But in terms of understanding the, some of the issues that some of my clients, you know, CEO clients are, are facing, uh, it's called The Strategy Book by Max McCown, spelled M-C-K-E-O-W-N. Is that Greg McEwen or Jack McEwen? Dr. Max McCown. I think it's pronounced McCown. I think we all probably have an idea what strategy is. It's a commonly understood concept, but it's not something that really gets enough focus in our of our attention. And, and this book, I like books that are simple, <laughs> simple to understand and simple to put into practice. 
and that book is definitely definitely does that and it and it's a really good you know we were talking about the 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 core roles of a ceo for highlighting that that's a this is a really good book it brings you back to the basics of what a ceo's value to the business really is and how important getting the right focus of strategy is really great book actually thank you okay so how can people get hold of you i've got a website capability.consulting my linkedin profile is oliver parker my name my telephone number 07963429922 most of the first conversations i have with a potential client are about whether recruitment is even possible whether it's the right time and my response is generally the sooner the better but only if there's clarity. And what I tend to spend my first few conversations with them is, is trying to help them get that clarity about what, what, what really should be recruited. And let me just emphasize what Oliver just said there. The first few conversations. If you are going to recruit, you're just about to spend the price of a small mortgage to hire somebody, whether you know, they're junior or senior. Uh, if they're senior, you could be spending quite a big mortgage. The knock-on effect of bad hires is astronomical. So if you're going to work with your recruiters, treat them as a partner. Do not treat them like a commodity provider who is an interruption to your day. These are people who are going to be bringing in the single most important resource in your business. I've got a, another recruitment client. And uh, he made a placement of a chief medical officer that added 300 million pounds to the value of the business. 300 million. Now, they couldn't have done it without this person. And there were about four of them in the world. If you get the right person, it can make a massive difference. So work with your recruiter, make yourself available to them and treat them as a partner. Recruitment is your number one job as a leader and a manager. Nothing matters more because as a CEO, whilst your job title should have only one word on it, which is growth, actually I lie. Growth and longevity. If you want to build a sustainable business that lasts, then make sure that that growth is underpinned by having the right people on board. Oliver, thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch at marcuskauke at me.com or mkauke at sandler.com or get in touch with me through LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then by all means, get in touch and either put us together on LinkedIn or send me their details and I'll do my best to get them on. In the meantime, Stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.